0: From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, and this is On Point. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams put it bluntly this morning, quote, I want America to understand this week it's going to be bad. The straight talk reflects the hourly reality hospital workers are already seeing in several states. Slow or inadequate testing of people who show up for hospital-based treatment, a dire shortage of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers themselves, risking a double catastrophe of a wave of sick patients and not enough medical professionals to treat them. Is that message getting through not only to the American people, but to their political leaders at the highest levels as well? This hour on point, we will get the latest on the coronavirus pandemic and protecting healthcare workers. And we will begin today with Donald McNeil Jr. He joins us via Skype from New York. He's science and health reporter for The New York Times. He has covered many epidemics and pandemics, including SARS, Ebola, malaria, swine and bird flu and mad cow disease as well. Donald, welcome to On Point.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us. And also with us is Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency room physician and visiting professor of health policy and management at the George Washington University School of Public Health. She also previously served as the city of Baltimore's health commissioner, and she joins us from Baltimore. Dr. Wen, welcome to you. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Megna. It's nice to have both of you. And you know what? Let me, what we're trying to do every hour uh, for On Point in for the foreseeable futures, first just check in with everyone to see how they're doing. So Dr. Wen, let me just first ask you, how are you doing and how have you been coping over the past couple of weeks? I
2: appreciate the question. I mean, no doubt this is a very challenging time for all of us where there is no such thing as normal. I mean, this is not even a new normal when everything changes every day. And on my end, I am more than 38 weeks pregnant. And so many changes happening in my life,
0: as with everybody else. I'm sure that brings along both a whole set of wonderful hopefulness and some concerns <laughs> given where we are. We'll come back to that in a minute, Dr. Wen. But Donald, same question uh, for you. How have you been? I mean, you've probably been as busy as ever reporting on this in the past couple of weeks, but how have
1: you been doing I'm far busier than I've ever been in my life. Um, I'm working basically 20-hour days, but I'm doing it from my girlfriend's couch. Um, We're holed up here in her apartment. Um, And I think I've only taken two brief walks in the last week and a half. Um, But on the other hand, I'm exhilarated because I've never felt so useful in my life. Um, You know, I've been covering all these pandemics that usually took place far, far away to people that Americans never thought about, and suddenly – You know, there's a chance to, you know, save the lives of people I know. Maybe Mm -hmm. if I, you know, get the word out quickly. So this is, to me, it's. I I mean, I'm not enjoying it. It's horrible, but I'm important.
0: Right. Well, you know what? I have to say I'm grateful for the expertise that both of you bring to our listeners this hour. So let's get the most out of uh, both of you. I want to first start off by playing of that full moment from this morning when Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams was on uh, the Today Show uh, on NBC talking about his concerns about the next wave um, that the United States will be facing with coronavirus. And here's what Dr. Adams said this morning.
3: I want America to understand this week it's going to get bad and uh, we really need to come together as a nation. I, I heard the stories that you were just playing young people out um, on beaches. Uh, we, we see here in D.C. Uh, that, that the uh, district set up a cam for people to watch the cherry blossoms. You look on the cam, you see more people walking around than you see cherry blossoms. And this is how the spread is
0: occurring. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams just this morning. Donald, why is Dr. Adams saying this, that this week in particular, it's going to get bad?
1: He's completely underplaying the situation. This week is the beginning of the week that we're going to see people dying in large numbers in hospitals beginning to get overwhelmed. But that's just going to continue. I, I mean, if you go on the web and you look at pictures of Wuhan, like, like the videos from the South China Morning Post, you see hospital corridors jammed with people. You see dead bodies lying on the floor. You see, you know, crematoriums where the, where the coffins are lined up because the the furnaces can't burn them fast enough. And I'm afraid that's what's coming in New York City uh, because we have been goofing around and not taking this seriously.
0: And why in particular? Are we sort of at that sort of rocket ship place point of the curve, so to
1: speak? Yeah, it, 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 it's not – I mean, remember that that the curve is of infections, right? People, people can be infectious before they feel symptoms for up to 48 hours before they feel symptoms. After people begin to feel sick, it's generally 10 days or so before they crash and actually need oxygen. So there are lots and lots of people who are infected and don't know it. There are lots and lots of people who are sick and who are going to develop much worse illness. The second week crash is a very dangerous phenomenon of this disease. And the fear is that, you know, after all those people begin to need oxygen, the tanks at the ventilators are not going to be there because the people who got sick in the first bit of this will be, already be have taken them all.
0: So, Dr. Nguyen, um, I hear Donald saying loud and clear that this is the the first week that we may start seeing the reality of what the warnings have been uh, for from public health officials the past couple of weeks. What do you think about that? He's completely right. And in fact, my
2: colleagues who are on the front lines working in the ERs in New York and Seattle and Boston and some of the other hard hit areas, they're already seeing it. And we know this is what happened in Italy and in China that it was the doctors and nurses on the front lines who were sounding the alarm first. And I just want to underscore what Donald said too that this is an insidious disease, which I think is why people are not taking it seriously enough. I mean, to be sure, a lot of people are. A lot of people are practicing good hand and face hygiene. They are practicing social distancing. They're taking the warnings by the CDC and others very seriously. But there are a lot of people who are not. And it's a major issue because we know that many people may not have symptoms but be infected with COVID-19. There was a study done that showed that Up to 86% of people who are carrying the disease and can transmit it to others don't know that they have it. And because we have a serious issue with lack of testing in this country, we are almost certainly underestimating by many magnitudes the number of people who are transmitting it in our communities. And all it takes is 10%, 20% of the population to not take it seriously for that community spread to happen. And as that happens... We are going to see, we are already seeing this escalation in the number of cases here in the U.S., and we are very close to the verge of our hospitals becoming so overwhelmed, as they did in Italy and China, that doctors have to make this these unthinkable decisions about who gets the last ventilator. And basically, who gets to live and who does not?
0: Mm. So, um, a, a little later in the show, we're going to focus much more um, sharply on the realities that healthcare workers are already facing. But I want to talk to both of you for a minute about the differing signals that we're getting from national leadership, right? We just heard what Dr. Adams, the U.S. Surgeon General, was saying about this week. Well, yesterday on Twitter, the president um, tweeted, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. At the end of the fifteen day period, we will make a decision as to which way we want to go. Uh, I'm not quite sure what President Trump is signaling there. It seems like he's he's got some discomfort with even the amount of social or physical distancing Americans are already being um asked to to undergo. donald. I mean, what do you what do you make of what the President has been saying?
1: It's the same denialism that he's been engaged in for weeks now i mean that it's okay we've only got five cases they're all going to disappear very soon oh don't worry it's going to disappear by april um and now there's a whole new school of thought growing up that's saying saying this this cure is worse than the disease phenomenon that existed in britain a couple of weeks ago where they were talking about let's just develop herd immunity they make it sort of phony scientific so that it sounds legitimate that meant basically let's just let the wave roll over us I remember Donald Trump saying, you know, it's it's just going to to wash through the population and he made it with his hand as if it was sort of a gentle breeze and I thought he's heard the lectures from the epidemiologists but when epidemiologists use that phrase it will wash through the population they mean it will wash through like a tidal wave that, that nothing stops it with no immunity in the population everybody gets it and this is tragic uh, tragic. I mean, the alarm bell should have been ringing since late January when it was very clear that there was human-to-human transmission and that it was doubling much faster than anybody expected. And, you know, it was possible to see the pictures from Wuhan at that time. They were leaking out from cell phone videos and stuff. The government for a while was trying to suppress it, but they were getting out. South mm. China Morning Post was reporting on it.
0: Well, you know, Donald, if I, I mean, just, just to... um to give a little bit of voice to some of the folks who the president might be listening to, I mean, there are some some people out there who are arguing that the impact of the sort of pandemic mitigation efforts um, on the economy, the impact on the economy could veer into the too severe category. And perhaps that's what the president is reacting to.
1: Well, look, were the, had the Chinese done nothing, this was on track to conservatively, end up with ten million dead in China. That's two percent fatality rate for one third of the population. And that that's conservative because one third is a conservative estimate of how many people would get infected. Instead, the Chinese have three thousand five hundred people dead. We're going to surpass China. We're going to surpass Italy. We're, we have five times the population of Italy, and we've been following the Italian model in containing this thing. So we're going to shoot past them in the next few weeks. I don't understand the thinking. I mean, I know the economy is going to tank. China's economy tanked. They recognized that was going to happen, and they decided they were going to live with it in order to save lives. And, and I talked mm-hmm at length, was the head of the WHO observer team in, in China. He said, all they ever said to me, Bruce, is it doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter what it costs. It's about saving lives. It's about saving lives. Whether it was you know, rolling out CT machines in, in parking lots, for whatever that cost, or whether it was just living with the economy tanking. What we need to do in this country is make sure that people have enough calories and enough water and enough medicines so they make it through this period of sheltering in place until either a vaccine or a treatment arrives. And then, then we can come out again. But the economy, you know, after the 1918 flu, you know, where the horrible flu killed two and a half percent of the population in most places, after that was the roaring 20s. You know, the the economy will come back.
0: Well, I've heard some people say that it felt like the roaring 20s uh, because of what happened at the end of that decade when the economy did slide into a pretty profound recession? But Donald McNeil and Donald McNeil and Dr. Lena Wen, stand by for just a moment, Dr. Wen. When we come back from our quick break, I want to get your view on what uh, the most effective messages from leadership should be right now uh, as we start the new week. So we are talking about the latest on coronavirus. And also, we'll take a close look at what healthcare workers are already seeing in hospitals and that shortage of personal protective equipment. So, there's a lot more to discuss when we come back. This is on point.
4: Want to add more positivity to your podcast feed? Check out Kind World, stories of extraordinary kindness and compassion.
2: That's Kind World. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We are getting the latest on the coronavirus global pandemic this hour and also going to take a close look at what healthcare workers are seeing on the front lines. I'm joined today by Donald McNeil Jr. He is the science and health reporter for The New York Times. He has covered any number of epidemics and pandemics for The Times. And Dr. Lena Wen also joins us. She's an emergency room physician and public health professor at George Washington University and previously, served as Baltimore's health commissioner and Dr. Wen, I'd love to lean on your uh, your experience as a commissioner of public health for a major American city. I mean what should the messaging what would be the ideal messaging to come from um, sort of sort of state and national level leaders right now given where we are in the pandemic?
2: Well, that messaging should be based on the truth and on science evidence and data the, uh, and it should be united, there needs to be a clear message from the top on all levels, both from elected political leaders, as well as from health officials. And that message should, again, be based in science and truth, and should start with how serious the situation is, that this is what we know, this is what we don't know. And here are the actions that we are taking now to protect the American people. The seriousness and the gravity should be conveyed not to scare people actually i believe that the best antidote to fear and panic is the truth people need to understand what is the scope of what's happening and they need to know that our public officials are doing their best and are being transparent with them and in this situation we should also be adding our officials should also be adding that yes things are extremely serious but here's what each of us can do, that we are not powerless against this virus. There are things that we can each do today when it comes to protecting ourselves, protecting our loved ones, and in so doing We're also helping with society and helping to safeguard the lives of everyone, too. I mean, I think that's what the American people need to hear. They don't want to be given this rosy, optimistic picture that's simply not true. They don't want to know about miracle cures that just aren't there. But actually, that truth and where we are and what we need to do and what we can do is the most important mm. thing that I hope that our public officials can can start doing.
0: Okay. So let's then um return our focus to what's happening inside of hospitals right now. Dr. Wen, I mean you said you'd been hearing from from colleagues um in various places. What are they saying about their access to adequate personal protective equipment? Because that has become we saw this coming, but now it's here. It's become a major issue in a lot of places. It truly is shocking.
2: Um, two months ago, we saw the reports coming from China about nurses who had to spray down their masks until they were so wet they couldn't be used because they didn't have enough, or doctors who didn't have gowns and so were trying to make them out of garbage bags and raincoats. And we thought, wow, that's horrific. And I don't think any of us could have imagined that that could be the reality here in the U.S., but I'm hearing from my colleagues who are posting all over social media pleading for masks and goggles and gowns, asking relatives and friends to go to local hardware stores to see if they can get masks, or trying to figure out if there are local 3D printers. We had the head of a, um, a major medical center asking for volunteers to try to make supplies. I mean, you know, my colleagues are also terrified of going to work. I mean, this is the work that we signed up to do. We took an oath to protect our patients. But there should also be an oath that society takes. There should also be an obligation that society has to protect those on the front lines. And it's just not enough at this point to say that we should be relying on the philanthropy and the goodwill of individuals who are volunteering to help healthcare providers. I mean, that's all really wonderful. And I'm glad to see this goodwill coming but at the end of the day, the federal government has an obligation. I mean, we would never send our soldiers to war and ask them to buy their own ammunition and to ask for volunteers to supply their armor. But that's what's happening now. And this is only the start of this epidemic, this outbreak here. What's going to happen in weeks or months? We're going to run out of supplies, and then we're going to run out of healthcare workers and people will die.
0: Yeah, you know, I, your uh, analogy to war is, is well taken, Dr. Wen, but I... I mean, look—the federal government. To be perfectly honest, I feel like has dropped. It has shown that it hasn't met the needs of soldiers at times too. I mean, in the early days of the the Iraq War, we were seeing all those stories about soldiers having to put armor on their own Humvees because there wasn't enough of it. But the question is, can the nation? Can um, the federal government then ramp up quickly to provide what is needed in an extreme circumstance? So Donald McNeil, we did hear that last week the president invoked the Defense Production Act. But what has to happen after that to then kick, to make the production happen? Does, does the president have to say specifically and now— th- you company X and company Y, please begin making these products, and the United States federal government will be your guaranteed
1: purchaser. Yes, I mean I think that will happen. I also think a lot of companies recognize. I mean, business people realize what's happening, and and they're they're stepping forward. This, you know, not everybody had to have their arm twisted during World War II in order to start making things for the military. You you start making it, and the government's going to pay you for it. Um, and people are going to be doing things like. You know, making ventilators out of out of automobile, you know, oil pumps or air conditioning pumps and and things like that. You can you can go online and find DIY ventilator building things. They're not going to be very good, but they're going to be better than nothing. And just getting the supplies of oxygen to the hospital, making sure there's enough, is extremely important. Lots of people lived in China because they were simply able to get oxygen, even if they couldn't get on a ventilator. All this stuff is absolutely crucial.
0: Well, let's listen to what the president himself said yesterday at the Daily Coronavirus Task Force press briefing. President Trump announced he said that medical supplies are on their way to some of the hardest hit states.
1: We have large quantities of medical equipment and
3: supplies on the way based on all of this to those states, including respirators, surgical masks and gowns, face shields, coveralls and gloves with large
1: quantities already delivered to Washington and to New York.
0: Uh, so Donald, uh, fact check for that for us. I mean, is is that true, or maybe even is, is it I, I, adequate? I have no way of knowing
1: okay. whether or not he's you know he's telling the truth. But the 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 real larger truth is those things should have been stockpiled and on their way uh, six weeks ago. I mean, we knew by late December. I mean, once the Wuhanese government and and I blame the Wuhan provincial officials more than the government in beijing but this the finger the finger point is going to have to wait till later you know this when when you've just had pearl harbor happen to you there's no point in sitting around writing after action reports first what you have to do is get organized and and get out there and fight it um but we've known since late we've known since december 30th that there was a mysterious outbreak of pneumonia going on in wuhan and then there was a cover-up period and then by january 23rd when Wuhan and the rest, big chunk of China was shut down, we realized that something very terrible was happening. Um, China shut down at a point where it only had 500 confirmed cases and 17 deaths. Now, that is so much earlier in its outbreak than we are now. And yet they still had a horror show in Wuhan that lasted for weeks. We should have taken that seriously. and But when the CDC tried to raise the alarm, Nancy Messonnier was slapped down. Nobody's heard from her since. She said, you know, get ready. And I've had a conversation with my kids about what it's going to be like if we're in, in uh, you know, in, in home quarantine for a month or more. And And, you know, that caused the stock market to get nervous. So she was told to be quiet um and we have been minimizing this problem for mm. weeks now and it's come home to roost.
0: Well Dr. Wen I wonder if we if you could help us think through possible solutions um or ideal plans of action in the next couple of weeks because at at this point at least we know that there are certain states where the number of cases right now is much higher than others, right? So if the federal government, for example, were to say we can guarantee that personal protective equipment in two to three weeks will be available in in certain large quantities, could we move around what we have uh, in various states to get us through the next five to seven days?
2: Yes, What we need right now is a national coordinated effort. We We cannot leave it to the state and local officials, some of whom have been doing an extraordinary job under very challenging circumstances. In the absence of federal action, they've been taking matters into their own hands, which I think is extremely commendable. But this is not a local issue. This is a national issue. And we need a national coordinated effort In the form of wartime mobilization, we need for the federal government to be, as you were saying, figuring out the supply issue, figuring out tests, which we still don't have nearly enough of, figuring out personal protective equipment, ramping up that production. We also need the federal government to figure out hospital capacity because hospitals will be running out of not only supplies, but capacity um, in terms of beds. This is the time for us to be building um, field hospitals and additional space. And that's something that China did an extraordinary job of, building Um, hospitals in just a matter of of, of a week or so. And the U.S. government can figure this out as well. And really, I mean, this is a time when we have to pull out all the stops. I'm afraid that everything that we've been doing is reacting to what's already occurred. Mm. And we've been reacting to what's occurred two or three weeks ago and saying, oh, we should have acted sooner. We should have developed tests a lot sooner. We should have gotten the personal protective equipment sooner. The thing is, we saw all this coming. Because China was first, and they actually they bought us time because of the many measures that they implemented. We saw what's been effective in South Korea, in Singapore, in Hong Kong. We are seeing what's not been effective and the measures that should have been taken in Italy but were not. We know what we need to do. We just need the political will. To get us there.
0: Yeah. Well, Dr. Wen and Donald McNeil Jr., hang on for just a moment because let's turn to our callers briefly. Let's start with Tom, who's calling from Pittsfield, Vermont. Tom, you're on the air.
3: Hi, I want to talk about the lack of personal protective equipment and medical supplies and having it, uh, it being due to our trade policy. In 2004, the last penicillin factory shut down in the United States. And today, 97% of our vaccines. of our generic drugs, and 80% of active pharmaceutical ingredients all come from China. We don't have a manufacturing base to produce these products. There's one producer of N95 masks in Texas. And on February 20th, I was able to order a box that wasn't being picked up by hospitals. So on February 20th, local hospitals hadn't started stocking up. In 2005, there was a pandemic plan by the Bush administration, That state and local authorities were supposed to stockpile equipment, PPE, in the event of a pandemic or an emergency. Mm -hmm. It appears as though none of them followed that plan because no local hospitals have a stockpile.
0: Mm. And
3: based on, you know, a lot of you are talking about China and the great work they've done. Back in November, there were two groups of people that were jailed. One was a group of cab drivers that were chatting on WeChat about a SARS-like virus going around Wuhan. And they were thrown in jail for rumor mongering. The Supreme Court of China let them out of jail with an apology. The Supreme Court of China throws people in holes never to be seen again. Mm. They don't let people out with apologies. The doctor that died was thrown in jail. was arrested for rumor mongering. Right. He had to sign. He had to sign a confession, and then he was let back out. He went into Wuhan and died.
0: Yeah. China- yeah, Tom. Tom, I, I take. I mean, I appreciate your point. China's early response. Um, Definitely left a lot to be desired, to put it mildly. But thank you so much for that call. Donald, it seems as if one of the – amongst the many points Tom was making is that um, the issue of global supply chains for medical supplies and pharmaceutical supplies being overly reliant on international sources. What do you
1: think about that? Um, It's true that they are – that we are – well, we are reliant on international sources and by and large, you know, life has been made easier for everyone by having a lot of trade around the world. But the failure to plan for this kind of uh, eventuality is what's bad. I called the CDC back in um, late the last week of January when I noticed that, that masks were, were disappearing from the shelves of the pharmacies across the street from the New York Times and I thought, you know, people are already beginning to hurt, hoard these things. Somebody's paying attention. I called the CDC and I said, look, I can see that mask hoarding is going on. What are you doing? You know, I, I, and I know it's also a disaster if all these masks end up in people's kitchen cabinets and not on the faces of healthcare workers because there's going to need them. What are you doing to reroute those supplies from the makers and the big warehouses? And they said, oh, don't worry, we're we're on it. We're speaking to the manufacturers now. I'm now beginning to wonder if I was told the truth or not because – you know, it did become impossible to get masks, but it still became possible to order them on Amazon or order them from suppliers. Um, but, you know, it, it's, I, I, I'm not going to defend China for the horrible things it has done, you know, over the decades, um, you know, from the Cultural Revolution to the treatment of the Uyghurs to the, mm. you know, selling of organs from, from criminals. But what China did after it finally grasped the nettle and just realized that it had an out-of-control outbreak was remarkable. I mean, public health experts I know are just stunned. They they, they say this is like capturing the wind. Nobody has ever stopped an outbreak of a highly transmissible disease in its tracks before, and we have to look at that Mm. model. It doesn't mean we have to be as brutal as they were about it, but we have to be extremely tough about it, and we have to be cooperative with each other because otherwise it is just going to keep going through the population. And the people who argue that oh, don't worry, it's only going to hit old people. I just got an email this morning from the family of a 25-year-old athletic young guy uh, in New Jersey who's on a ventilator and um, you know, not expected to live and there was a chance he could get remdesivir through a compassionate use program and, and Gilead has had to say, look, we don't have enough remdesivir to go around and cut off the program. So people are fooling themselves if, this, if they think this is something that's only going to kill their grandmother as if that were an acceptable thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Well, let me just turn back to Dr. Wen to get her her thoughts on this. And and Dr. Wen, we've got about a minute and a half before the break, but go ahead.
2: Well, I mean, I I I agree with Donald that pe- that there are a lot of concerns right now with people who are just not understanding the gravity of the situation or who are taking the wrong measures, hoarding. As as an example, I mean, after the president made comments about certain treatments that are, by the way, not evidence-based and not proven, people bought these medications in large amounts. And as a result, the individuals who actually need these medications now, who have lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, are not able to get them. And so I would really urge everyone to please follow the guidance from the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, the CDC, from your public health officials. Do not hoard and take the appropriate actions which at this point are your own personal hygiene and physical distancing social distancing measures because that is what's going to save lives at the end of the day and i just wanted to say also to the caller who was talking about state and local officials our public health infrastructure has been decimated over the years because there is a saying in public health that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. Mm-hmm. Our work is so often invisible. And we need to think about bolstering that infrastructure so that we do not have this type of pandemic happening again when we could have predicted it happening in the first
0: place. Well, Dr. Lena Wen and Donald McNeil, hang on here for just a second. One more break to go and we'll talk a lot more when we come back. This is On Point.
1: Only a game is a sports show that tells stories
0: about real people, everyday athletes, lifelong fans, and even... I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you can call me Kareem, please. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. We are getting the latest on the coronavirus global pandemic this hour. Also talking specifically about what uh, frontline workers in American hospitals are seeing. And I'm joined today by Dr. Lena Wen. She's an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University and previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. Don- Donald McNeil Jr. also joins us. He's science and health reporter for The New York Times and has covered... Many a disease outbreak, all the way from HIV-AIDS to Ebola to SARS and swine and bird flu. And let's go back to our callers quickly. Let's go to Mark, who's calling from Chelsea, Michigan. Mark, you're on the air.
3: Hello. I wanted to make a couple of comments. Uh, One, I'm in uh, correspondence with a Dr., in Shanghai, and um, 50 tons of vitamin C ascorbic acid was shipped out to China about a month ago. They've gone through four clinical trials with a near 100% cure rate. Um, the other aspect to it is that the, um, the under Dr. John uh, James Weiler in Canada, whose research team did a genomic analysis of the COVID-19, and they found um, actual places in the sequencing where bat coronavirus and snake coronavirus had been inserted another team in india
0: so mark hang on here for just a second i'm just going to jump in here um i uh, yeah yeah i just i have to i I, we need to have yeah yeah so i know
1: the source of both those rumors go ahead ridiculous um (laughs) the the virus okay first of all we should just drop the vitamin c nonsense i mean that the vitamin c as a miracle drug has been going around since linus pauling started pushing the idea 30 years ago vitamin c does not cure the common cold vitamin c is excellent for scurvy there's no question about it but for most other diseases it is not helpful it is not something that's curing people in china the rumors about bat dna and um snake dna uh well bat dna is absolutely correct because this is you know coronaviruses mostly circulate in bats originally they come through they you know sars and mers both came to us through other animals in the case of sars it was civet cats in the case of mers it's camels um that doesn't mean that those first of all the rat uh, the um uh snake part is ridiculous it's not true that was a that was a bad paper and it was with, withdrawn by the authors the um uh the the closest relative to this virus is a bat virus um in uh in it was found in a cave in southern china bat southern china but but it's a ninety six percent match which is which in coronaviruses is a very poor match it does not mean that it's a close relative you have to get a ninety nine point something percent match in order to think wow this must be the virus that jumped from animals into people mm-hmm. so that's – it's terrifying. Every epidemic I've ever covered, crazy rumors go around and people repeat them as if they're facts. And when you dig into them, you find – I mean the reason we haven't wiped polio out of the world is because the rumor has gone around in Muslim countries that the polio vaccine is a Western plot to sterilize Muslim girls. And so polio has never been wiped out in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, you know the rumors. The reason we had a measles outbreak in New York City was because of rumors that the measles vaccine was somehow dangerous, or that it, that it contained um, pig DNA and and uh, uh, you know pig products and things. Now, some of those were partially correct in that um, there is some porcine gelatin used in the measles vaccine to stabilize Mm. it. But this is known to the top rabbis in Jerusalem. This is known to the top Islamic scholars. And this is known to the Vatican. uh, and, And they have completely approved. The Vatican is another issue because of the question about cells from aborted fetuses. But all of these vaccines are approved by the top religious authorities on the principle that saving lives is more important than worrying about dietary laws.
0: Yeah. So, Donald, I appreciate that because this is not a time for conspiracy theories. This is a time for scientific facts. So, Dr. Wen, let me turn back to you because you started the hour by... um, Sharing with us the happy news that, that you're uh, 38 weeks pregnant, um, it also um, is a way for us to talk briefly about you know all the other aspects of healthcare that have to continue even in the midst of this global pandemic, um, and especially Gosh. for people who are, who might be you know uniquely vulnerable. So can you can you talk talk to us about that about the concerns that perhaps you know expectant mothers might have regarding going into labor at, at this particular time.
2: Sure, well, you're right that healthcare does not stop in the middle of pandemics. And that's something that we should all keep in mind too that healthcare is a limited resource at the best of times and becomes even more limited in times like this. And people still have to continue seeking care. So, actually, one more thing that I hope that your listeners will take away is. Please do not go to the ER unless you have something that is a true emergency, because that's another way for us to prevent overwhelming hospitals. There are people still coming in, as they will always do with heart attacks, strokes, car accidents. And yes, they will go to the hospital for labor and delivery. And we really need to save our precious resource for those who really need it. If you need our help, please come to the ER, but otherwise don't. Um, But that said, um, to answer your question, it is a... It's a really challenging time for all of us. I mean, pregnancy is already a time that's full of stress in different ways. And so far, there is limited data. There are limited data coming out about the effect of coronavirus on pregnant people. It appears that um, pregnant women are not more susceptible to coronavirus do not have greater um, um, severe effects thus far based on the very limited studies that are done. However, there's a lot that's not known And also pregnancy is a state of immunocompromise. Um, And so individuals who are pregnant should follow the same type of precautions as we would advise for elderly individuals and those with underlying medical conditions as well. And that is to socially distance and stay away from public places and limit um, and really do not do non-essential travel or or gatherings as much as possible. I think all that that said, there are just unique concerns as well. I mean, the guidelines are changing almost on a daily basis of what happens if one develops symptoms and has to go through labor and delivery mm-hmm. and must be separated from the newborn, um, which is something that frankly plagues me and is a nightmare that I have every day of what that would look like if I were in a hospital and had coronavirus and could not be with my newborn for potentially weeks. Um, There are now hospitals, including in New York, that are restricting visitors so much so that the woman in labor does not have a partner with her. And again, this is out of concern for public health. And so these are all concerns I think that we have to face as we recognize that healthcare doesn't stop In a time of a pandemic, and these are just amplified issues for those who are the most vulnerable.
0: Yeah, it just continues to underscore the importance of personal responsibility at this time. So Dr. Lena Wen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And and best of luck to you in those last couple of weeks, Dr. Wen. I appreciate it. Donald McNeil, we've got about two minutes left here, and I wanted to just ask you one final question, because here is what is what you have covered. Uh, in your career, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, malaria, swine flu, bird flu, mad cow disease, SARS, MERS. How does this coronavirus pandemic compare to those?
1: It Well, I spend a lot of time thinking about whether or not I'm conveying the right amount of alarm. <clears throat> and I know I sound like a screaming alarmist. some terrible Cassandra. I was not worried about MERS coming to this country. I was, I'm, was never worried about Ebola, even when there was somebody fell sick in New York, because I know how those diseases are transmitted. In the beginning, I, I was quite worried about H1N1 swine flu back in 2009, <clears throat> but then when the mortality figures came out later, I realized, okay, it's extremely transmissible, but it's not that lethal. This disease worries me like no other, and I've been saying that for a number of weeks. It reminds me of 1918. A highly transmissible disease that has a lethality rate of one, two, three in that neighborhood percent. When that happens, you probably survive. But if you have 300 friends and relatives and acquaintances, 2% fatality means that six of them die. So as in 1918, not everybody died, but everybody knew somebody who died. I have a friend whose grandmother died, a young woman with kids. I have another friend whose grandmother's sister died. Bad things are going to happen and people have to stop pretending they're not.
0: Well, Donald, you helped us uh, just tell people that tomorrow, in fact, on this program, we are going to take a deep look over the course of the hour at that 1918 global flu pandemic about how it started, what happened, lessons learned to see what we can apply from uh, what happened a century ago. So that's tomorrow on On Point. But Donald McNeil Jr., science and health reporter for The New York Times, as we mentioned, he has covered a number of disease epidemics and pandemics, specializes in plagues and pestilences. It has been a pleasure to have you with us, Donald. Thank you so very much for your reporting.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Sorry to be such a Debbie Downer, but this is reality
0: we we need okay. truth and fact right now delivered delivered soberly uh, and you've done just that, Donald so we'll have you back um. Uh, when, in, in a couple of days or weeks. So thank you again, Donald. And now thank in the you. last couple of minutes of the show, I want to turn to what's happening in Washington um, regarding relief packages or aid packages that are being debated uh, in the United States Congress. So Kimberly Atkins joins us. She's senior news correspondent for WBUR covering national political news. And she is in Washington. Hi there, Kimberly. Hi Megna. Okay, so there's a lot of activity going on in the Senate right now. What exactly are senators debating and where are we with this bill?
4: Yes. So Democrats and Republicans are trying to hash out details uh, of a massive, more than $1.5 trillion relief package for coronavirus. Now, a lot of uh, the measures in this bill have been agreed to by both sides, things like uh, expanding unemployment and other benefits for workers and giving uh, cash assistance to uh, individual workers directly. But there are some sticking points that prevented this bill from going to a vote over the weekend. The biggest is something called the Exchange Stabilization Fund. What this is is a a 500 billion dollar fund that would help shore up corporations uh, to keep them from going under and to keep the economy uh, strong. There are some limitations uh, as to what these corporations can do meant to prevent them from doing things like using the money to buy back their own stock. But there's a big uh, exemption which gives the Treasury secretary a lot of leeway and not a lot of transparency to lift some of those restrictions. That's a non-starter for some Democrats uh, who call it a slow lush fund that can be used just to dole out money uh with little with little uh assurances and little oversight to big corporations. So they're continuing to work through that. We hope uh we think that there might be a vote this afternoon uh but this is all Pretty fluid right now.
0: Okay, so if it's more than one and a half trillion dollars, and five hundred billion dollars of that is this exchange stabilization fund, it's not an insignificant amount, Kimberly. Right? It not. It's, a, it's a third of what's being proposed. And but so how? I mean, how close are the sides
4: to an agreement over this? This is a major sticking point, right? It's not. A, it's not a small one. It's a big one. I mean. It, it Democrats say that there does need to be money given to this the private sector to these corporations they want more oversight they want more restrictions on how this money can be doled out. Republicans are saying, look, the Democrats are moving the goalpost here. These things were already agreed to. There are already restrictions there. And and time is of the essence. And it was only when the Democratic leaders, uh, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, kind of came in late to voice these objections that really stopped the ball from rolling. So there is is politics and policy Mm -hmm. at play here. uh, But everybody knows that this is an urgent time. And uh, as we are seeing businesses close, uh, people really begin to struggle and feel the impact of this they know they need to move quickly
0: right and so um, it sounds as if democrats are most are unified in their concerned about the exchange stabilization fund are there Any um, voices of concern from the other side
4: of the aisle? Yeah, there's some voices of concern. Look, there's some uh, on the Hill that are wondering if perhaps this can be split up. And just as the Democrats and Republicans hammer out the details over uh, how this money will be used and the oversight over uh, the money that's given to corporations, if they could maybe pass a separate bill that will authorize the cash, uh, the direct cash assistance for workers, uh, expanding some uh, benefits like unemployment while other things are worked out. And keep in mind, it's not just the uh, exchange stabilization fund that's at issue here. Democrats want more. They want things like child care protections, uh, student loan uh, forgiveness, other measures that they say really will help the people on the ground and that it should be more focused on workers and families than on corporations. So there are a lot of sticking points. Perhaps we might see uh, the bill split up. It's still a lot of uh, unanswered questions Mm. at this point.
0: And uh, and as this this is all being debated. We have several senators. I'm thinking of Senator Rand Paul who have yeah. been um, diagnosed with coronavirus and are
4: self-quarantining right now. Are they, will they be able to cast votes from wherever they are? No, there's no mechanism in the Senate to vote remotely. So, yes, Senator Ann Paul, who is uh, the first senator to test positive, as well as some other people who he has been in touch with, including Senator Mitt Romney and Senator Mike Lee, will all be absent uh, today. uh, And that just makes all of this more complicated. Okay, And uh, we just got about a minute
0: and a half here, uh, Kimberly. So just as a reminder, there could be a vote on this this afternoon. We'll keep our eyes on that. I just want, wanted to also ask you about the latest announcement from the Federal Reserve. The Fed is mm-hmm. saying it plans to buy as
4: much government-backed debt as needed. That seems pretty big. It's extraordinary. It's one of the most extraordinary moves the Fed has ever taken. It basically says – it everything is on the table uh, it, it, and they will buy back bonds and other mortgage-backed securities, anything they possibly can to keep credit flowing, to keep it from being locked up, to keep corporations and large and small businesses uh, afloat during this time. And it really shows uh, that this is something like none other. We were, you were talking about the disease being like the 1912 uh, pandemic. Uh, there's nothing historically like this. This is even during uh, times to Get out of the depression, we didn't see measures quite like this. It's clearly uh, the Fed saying, signaling that this could be catastrophic uh, if all options are not put on the table and they don't move to the absolute fullest extent to their ability.
0: Well, Kimberly Atkins is senior news correspondent for WBUR, covers national political news for us from Washington. Kimberly, thank you so much for bringing us the latest. We'll check back in with you um, if there's any movement on that bill in the Senate. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks. So tomorrow, uh, as we mentioned, we will be talking about the 1918 global pandemic. We're also going to be looking at online learning with many millions of students, particularly college students, not on campuses. So are you a college student or a professor whose classes have moved online? How is it going? What roadblocks have you faced? Do you wonder if you'll be learning as much as you could if you were on campus? So we want to know what's working and what's not with online learning. Give us a call at 617-353-0683. That's 617-353-0683. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. This is On Point.